Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about comics, menopause, being on Jeopardy, black art from the edge of the universe, and more with my very special guest, Awan Mance. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studio in Tualatin, Oregon. We are over the moon today to welcome artist, cartoonist, professor, and friend to the show, Awan Mance, to talk with us. Awan Mance is a professor of African-American literature at Mills College in Oakland, California. Awan is a lifelong artist and writer who was recently featured in the documentary, No Straight Lines, and has a beautiful comic in the Eisner-winning anthology, Menopause, a comic treatment. We talked today about the time she won Jeopardy. We also talked about gender, nerdiness, Awan's years-long project, 1001 Black Men, and her new art show, Black Art from the Edge of the Universe, which is on display right now at the African-American Art and Culture Complex in San Francisco. Go see it. You can find Awan in all of these projects at awanmance.com. Now, please enjoy my talk with a very special guest who happens to be a Virgo, Professor Awan Mance. Awan Mance, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to have you here. It's a long time coming. Cool, cool. Well, it's good to see you again. Nice to see you too. Um, I need to tell you that I didn't realize you were on Jeopardy. Uh-huh. It was, I know, I know you through the queer comics community. I know you through the Queers and Comics Conference, through teaching, through your work, through all of your projects. And then when I was researching this episode, I was like, what? <laughs> Alon was on Jeopardy multiple days in a row. <laughs> oh yeah back in was it I think I taped in 98 and I was on in spring of 99 it was super fun were you a huge Jeopardy fan before then I was I was I loved the show and I would always watch and think I could do this I could be on this show and then they auditioned in, in a big city near um near where I lived and I thought this is my chance <laughs> how did you prepare for even the audition um, I watched a lot of Jeopardy and, um, and, you know, people who've gone on Jeopardy have and been successful write books. So I read a couple books by people who have been successful and I like memorized the names of all the presidents and like all the, uh, like cities or all, all the, all the countries in Africa, you know, all the cities, capital cities in the United States, stuff like that. Just so I at least have that, that base knowledge. And then. Well, do you know Professor Karen Tonkson? I know of Karen. We have a lot of friends in common. I really feel like I was like, I feel like Awan and Karen need to know each other. And then I saw you were connected on Instagram or Facebook or yeah. something. Yeah. Karen and I have a um, a podcast called The Gay Amazing Race about the amazing race. Because we awesome. both watch The Amazing Race with the same kind of like intensity that I think. <laughs> and I think Karen's wife watches Jeopardy with that level of kind of like study and intensity and they're very into it. 
Oh, yes. I tell you, I'm, I still watch. I mean, I watch the Jeopardy champion of champions. Champ, that's, uh, you know, the three greatest champions ever competing for a week. And I have to say, it was like watching artists at work. I love that show. I, I totally geek out on it. Even now, it's like been like 20 years since I was on it. And I still think it's, it's awesome. What kinds of like, okay, so you studied very hard, but then were there ways in which you learned to game the game? Were there, were there particular strategies and things that you learned as you went into it? You know, I learned that a lot of it is about um, timing. So you Mm -hmm. need to read the question as fast as you can and think about, or at least the first couple lines and think, okay, I think I can answer this and just try. Because whoever gets in first gets to answer the question first, except there's a lockout time when if you push your button, they'll lock you out for a little bit and then, so you can't buzz in as soon as they reveal the question. So I was working on, you know, I held my hands up like this a lot to try and learn how to time it. But also there's a hint in every question And so it really is like a brain teaser. If you can read the hint, if you can figure out the hint in every question, you can answer, um, you can answer more than you think you can. Of course, if you have no idea, uh, like the different peaks of the Himalayas, (laughs) there can be all the hints in the world, you will not know. Um, But, um, but yeah, so I, I practice those questions a lot. That's why I watched every single day and tried to answer every single thing that came up. And uh, it was good, it was good practice. It was super fun too. I love quizzes, I love taking standardized tests. And so <laughs> Jeopardy was like the ultimate. Do you like doing, like listening, do you listen to Sunday Puzzle on NPR with Will Shorts? I do, I do. And sometimes, you know, I my big thing is I like factual knowledge tests. Like when they have um, trivia night at like the local bar that's like my idea of a good time. I haven't done it much, but when I have, I'm like, this is the best. Sometimes those Will Shorts things, I like word puzzles. Those are super fun. They're hard. He's, he's amazing. But um, yeah, I would go back on Jeopardy again if I could. Oh my God. If I was the casting director on Jeopardy, I would call you up right away. <laughs> are you hearing that casting director? I'm going to send was- this directly to them right now. <laughs> I tell you, I recommend going on. Anyone who thinks you have a lot of trivial knowledge um, or just general knowledge stuff, go on Jeopardy. It's it's it was the best payday of my life. Oh my gosh, you got you walked away with fifteen thousand dollars. I did, and I won it all in the first day of taping. <laughs> so they just tape episode after episode after episode. They do, yeah. Did your brain get tired, or were you just on so much adrenaline that you could do it? You know, I was just pumped. I uh, just, you know, it just the time went right by. It was, it was amazing. Oh, I love that. Do you keep in touch with any of the people who you were on the show against or with? I don't. I have never seen any of those people again. Um, and it's weird because we're all in a room together in the green room for a couple hours before the taping. So we do get to know each other a bit. And we sit together in the audience waiting to be called down to the stage for our turn. Um, cause they don't decide until they see who lost and then they think, well, who do we want to put against that person? So we were just sitting there thinking, am I next? Am I next? Oh my gosh. <laughs> so stress. Stress. Do they pump? Do, is that, that's how they pump you up as they just, you're just like a horse in the state. You're just like, <laughs> put me in coach. I'm ready. Oh yeah. Well, this leads me to my next question, which is. I, so I know that you self-identify as a nerd. Yes. What is your definition of a nerd? What makes a nerd? 
<laughs> well, hmm. I think a nerd, well, I would say a nerd is everything that I am, but um, I feel like nerds are folks who kind of embrace the un, un, embrace the parts of themselves that give them a lot of joy, even though they are quite aware it's completely uncool. And so, you know, I played, uh, I was an orchestra geek and, you know, walking around with my violin or not, I didn't play the violin, walking around with my viola. I wished it was a violin, um, but I was even nerdier. I played the viola um, and uh, yeah, I love, I played piano since I was like five and I would, you know, loved being a shelver in the library when I was in college, all of that stuff. And, you know, I would just talk, you know, nerds just talk about it. They just own it. Um, and their love for their particular stuff they geek out on is bigger than their love of being cool. I think that's a really good definition. I always <laughs> wondered, I was like, do you just have to be an enthusiast about something? And then you get the difference between like a nerd and a geek. Ah, yes. Yes. Or a nerd and a dork. Right. Yeah, but deeply intertwined, all three, I think. Um, although you can be a nerd and a geek, but not a dork. Yeah, I think um, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I try to bring all three elements to my daily life. You know, the awkwardness of being dorky. I'm, I, I unlearned a lot of dorkiness uh, just before ninth grade when I decided I wanted to have friends. Oh, really? Um, I did. I How did. did you unlearn it? <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, my parents moved. We moved three hours or two and a half hours north of Long Island, which is where I grew up in, for high school. And so I was able to completely reinvent myself. I got new clothes. I had spent a couple of years um, in a rather large private school, large to me, watching you know, well, what are the cool kids doing? So that's how this works. And so I deployed some of those lessons and, um, and I completely, well, I reinvented myself enough to really fit in in the honors track. So <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, I definitely didn't become the prom queen, but, uh, but you know, I could hang. And um, so I, I, you know, I realized, well, if you do this, that's a little too weird. People are going to think you're just too weird. And so I, you know, trimmed some of the most dorky stuff out of my behavior and I was able to fit in. It was and a good I, moment. <laughs> I don't know if I had that moment. I think I was, I can see myself in the tears of like middle school. <laughs> and I think I was like one, I was like an upper nerd tier. I was like the lowest tier, but kind of like, <laughs> You know, toward like so, there were there were other people that I made fun of, oh, with my oh. friends, not to their face, but with my friends. But then maybe everybody else made fun of us, and we just our clothes were like, you know. But then it would be like if I was wearing the same outfit I got from the mall with, and then a popular girl was, it was obvious who that outfit belonged to. <laughs> <laughs> so if even if I tried to pose, if my mom was like, "We're gonna shine you up a little bit," um, it was obvious. Who, who the poser was there. <laughs> you know, I, 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 that is, that is relatable. Um, you know, I went to, a, um, I went to, I lived in, in upstate New York. I lived in a school district where the, the segregation was very much on the basis of class and it was very thorough. Um, you know, there were entire neighborhoods. It was very, it's also almost exclusively white um, high school. Um, so that was its own. So actually, because there were so, there were so few black people 
that it was, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it wasn't a racist space. I would say it wasn't a good use of natural resources to be racist because there were only like four of us in my, in my class. So, you know, out of 400 kids, four or five of us. So people instead made fun of people on the basis of class, which was quite awful, but the segregation was, was quite thorough. And so it became this thing that um, anything that had the trappings of, um, of middle or upper class identity became the cool thing. And so it was kind of one of those upside down hierarchies in which um, as we went through high school, you began to see um, that a lot of the athletes were also a lot of the uh, kind of um, AP calculus nerds. It was just a very strange place. I, I attribute to the fact that there were so many kids of professors there. Mm. Um, and, um, and then juxtaposed against folks who were really um, struggling under the uh, collapse of the local um, manufacturing economy up there. And so everyone under this in the same building, it was just bizarre. And so we were, I, it, it, so there were just things that you just, um, what became cool um, in our little corner of college bound people, um, it was almost as though we had a separate school. Um, and so, you know, we could kind of set up coolness, whatever that looked like. And then there was this other segment of school, which, uh, you know, I just, when I think about it now, I think that was, it was not, not right. Um, there was a whole other set of what was cool and each group thought the other was uncool. Hmm. And so it was just a strange, strange place. Um, but in some ways I thought, well, I'm glad you're fighting against each other. So you can't turn against the black people. So it's like, I was relieved. Today's episode is brought to you by Maria Turner Carney, Laura Perry, Emily Helmus, Lily Withicombe, Cancerian, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular, producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or this just in, he's got a Venmo, Hell Books on Venmo. That's H-E, Double Hockey Sticks, Books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. I teach my students, one of your comics is Gender Studies, Tiffany Banks, <laughs> as uh, one of their required readings. I teach it to them and I'll, I would love for you to tell us about it. I teach it to them as it's a really nice character study that you've interwoven with your personal history and your personal story and kind of seeing how someone, how your sense of self reflects off somebody else. Ah, well, that was a really fun piece to write. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking back, it's really second, third and fourth grade. Um, I went to a new school in second grade. It was a very tiny parochial school on Long Island in New York. And um, there was this kid in the class. And I, you know, I would say there's this girl in the class, but I, I don't want to project a gender onto the Tiffany Banks, not, not their real name person. Um, I don't know how Tiffany would identify today. Um, but certainly at the time, I remember being really young and you know, I was in second grade when I first met Tiffany Banks. But thinking even then, um, 
I kind of admired, I admired Tiffany Banks because there was this kid who just, just, it wasn't even as though they refused to adhere to gender norms. It's just that just, they just refused to not be themselves. They were just in the room as this wonderfully, I mean, it was more than just being, I remember the kid thinking, I could say Tiffany is a tomboy, but, but that, does, that's, that doesn't go far enough. Um, and even as a second, third, fourth grader, um, I knew that. And all the other kids did too. They, um, and, you know, Tiffany, it, it, she commanded, or they, they commanded respect, um, but it wasn't as though it had to even, that, that Tiffany even had to fight for it. Just being who they were, just bringing their full uh, genderqueer self in uh, the 1970s on Long Island, um, it was wonderful to see the school kind of align. At the time, it was fascinating to see, you know, the teachers, almost all um, white cishet teachers in a religious school, in an Episcopal school, um, you know, like, okay, Tiffany, oh, what, what great work that you've got with your plaid skirt on, you know, it was just, um, it was a really sweet moment to, to just see this community kind of um, treat Tiffany as though, you know, yeah, that's who you are and you're, you're, you're one of us. And then of course, I also thought Tiffany was the coolest person ever, so. How long did it take you from that time to kind of assume your full butch identity <laughs> or to bloom, to blossom? <laughs> I mean, I could do, you know, what uh, I think a lot of people do, you know, just you kind of do your gender, uh, you know, um, Monday morning quarterbacking and think, oh, I should have known about this. And yeah, this, this, you know, I just had to have this plaid jacket and, you know, all this other stuff, you know. But um, I think it was really, in, I would say, I would say phase one was high school when I um, kind of encountered a masculine aesthetic that really worked for me. Um, and it's a little embarrassing, but I will say it out loud. Um, the movie Chariots of Fire was my fashion role model and uh, throughout high school, um, even to a degree today. And I just, that look, um, I like the consistency of it that what they were wearing, I could actually wear in the 1980s when I was in high school and college. And, and, um, and I love the idea of the not, that's one of the things I love about masculine clothing is that the aesthetic <laughs> remains very consistent over about a hundred years. And so I just felt like that whole notion of the kind of gentleman scholar, I thought that is me, I am this gentleman scholar. And so my mother was so wonderfully um, enthusiastic about that look. Um, and so she was to go with me to get some ties and jackets and she just thought it was super cool. And so that was really great to have that support. Um, and then I came out as actually a queer person um, just before my senior year of college actually. Um, but I definitely leaned more into gender queer presentation. Of course, we didn't use that language at the time, um, but gender queer butch presentation throughout my time at college, discovered the world's greatest army navy store um, great. Uh, uh, and so it was really that coming into my sense of gender started in high school. And, you know, that happened like a good seven years before coming out as a queer person. So those things did not necessarily align. Um, your, this brings me to your comic in menopause, a comics treatment, <laughs> which by the way, 
congratulations on being part of an Eisner nominated anthology. And certainly this is such a strong piece of work. I feel like every time I see you put something in an anthology, it's all, it's all killer, no filler. Like it's, you know, some people like you could see, like kind of put some, you know, what, what's in an anthology, like, you know, I like, but your work there is always, you're so good at telling a short story, telling an impactful story, meeting the theme and just killing it. And so, um, congratulations on that comic and on the Eisner Award. And can you talk a little bit about your comic in Menopause, A Comics Treatment? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love um, when MK contacted me and said, hey, you know, and, and a whole bunch of other people said, do you want to do a comic for Menopause, A Comic Treatment? I thought, you know, that's interesting. Um, I don't, um, I, the idea of thinking about writing about, um, you know, XX bodies and their discontents. And I thought, well, that's not really a topic I engage very much. Um, you know, I have a complex relationship with, um, uh, you know, these kind of gender markers and the kind of maiden mother crone. And as you, you know, that's not really been something that's ever been of interest or importance to me. So I really had to think creatively. And I, and I just told the true story, which is that, um, you know, I, um, I will be 55 in about a month. And, um, you know, if I think, well, what is, what will menopause, um, what, what is one of, what should I expect? You know, um, you read um, everything is through the lens of um, kind of cisgender heteronormativity and people reminding you that um, you will still be feminine and, you know, giving you advice about how you and your, male partner, you know, your uh, cis male partner can continue to have a lively sex life and all of these other things. And I think that is absolutely unrelatable to me. And so I just thought, well, let's come up with, <laughs> let me, how do I walk people through this experience? Um, and then my colleagues, you know, I, I, I have this wonderful group of colleagues at my institution um, and beyond. Um, and we're all about the same age. And so at various times, people are talking about things like hot flashes. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about menopause. And then I started noticing that people around me are actually having these experiences. And I thought, ah, I better prepare for this. But there's not a lot that doesn't look at menopause through the lens of a particular gendered loss. And I'm not sure I would experience that as a loss. Are there other places where you've been able to find anything that supports your experience or your potential experience? You know, a good Google search, there are some uh, um, trans folks, some uh, uh, butch folks and gender non-binary folks who've written about the experience and its relationship to non-traditional gender. Um, and so that has been really cool. Um, but, you know, people have had to make their own resources because the resources that are out there um, are just don't take um, non-binary, gender non-conforming experiences into account. Yeah. That was something I really liked about this anthology, too, was also including trans people who had to, you know, have people asking them, like, well, what about living in a, in a body without cycles, without the natural, without the cycle of the moon? And it really is just a different experience. And I am so happy that people are saying some of these things out loud. Yeah. In this book. Yeah. I mean, cultural feminism 
um, you know, the, I always think of it as a kind of a 70s thing, you know, we all are connected to the moon and, this, you know, and all in our, our natural nurturing, you know, but there's, there's, a, that just comes rushing back in, um, in all of the discourse around anything that has to do with um, bodies that people that are assigned female. Um, any kind of discourse around changes in those bodies, cultural feminism and essentialism just comes roaring back in, even in the medical discourse. And it really, it lines up it, your piece. I can't remember. I think that you, you mentioned this. It's just kind of the idea of like, you know, queer failure or queer people <laughs> having a different life trajectory than yeah. the heteronormative life trajectory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my favorite uh, pages to draw, um, you know, thinking about you know, and it, it was what I enjoy about some of the comics I've created is that it actually makes me have to engage things that I found alienating or annoying and revisit them. And, and it's, you know, if you're thinking, oh, you know, um, that, I, I mean, and I don't want to, I want to say the whole maiden mother crone stages of a woman's life thing is really empowering and useful to a lot of people. And I think, awesome. Not empowering and useful to me, really. Um, and, um, but having to actually not ignore it or say, uh, um, but actually to have to draw those figures and think of what they would say is a really interesting way of kind of exercising <laughs> my annoyance at certain stuff. It's one of the fun things about comics is if you want to convey something, you have to draw your antagonists, you have to draw yourself. If, you're, if it's about you, you have to draw the stuff that was, you know, that really kind of annoyed you. But for me, I, it was so profound to think, what are my stages of life? And I did the, you know, first I'm a young rugby player who likes beer. Then I'm a totally neurotic. I think I did the neurotic grad student, which in some ways I'm still that person, even though I'm not a grad student anymore. And then the kind of aging professor with archive with books from the archives, you know, that's really those things have been my relationship to different parts of the academy have really been the things that have defined my life. Um, as, um, as an academic. I mean, I've been in the academy as either a student or a faculty member since, since I was 17 years old. And so, um, you know, alternative trajectories, um, you know, that whole notion of queer time and trans time that Jack Halberstam talks about um, is, uh, you know, gosh, maybe I should do another comic. Um, you know, that's a really, I love the idea of marking our passage through life in different ways, you know, and changing what age appropriate means to reflect that that we're just, we're, we're, we're on different timelines. We're not even on a different timelines. We're making ours up as we go along. Yeah. I found at a certain point, even outside of like hetero, heteronormative timelines, there was also kind of class timelines. Like where the moment where I bought a car that was a new car, my friends yeah. were like, you're an adult now. And I, I was like, I don't know if I wasn't an adult when I had a Volvo 240. I, you know, I've, <laughs> I've lived away from home since I was 16 or 17 years old. And I felt pretty adult. I raised dogs. I had my own, you know, I just, and then that, those kind of markers of like, you know, and then when I own a house, it will be like, and now you're a bonus adult, you're adult level two. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm almost 55. I've never bought my own car. I've always gotten a car either a new car as a gift for my parents for finishing grad school or a hand-me-down car for my parents. That has been, you know, I, 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 so in some ways I am forever young, perhaps, maybe. I don't know, is that my fountain of youth, never buying your own car? 
<laughs> well, I would love if you did a comic about these this timeline or this <laughs> kind of, you know, queer, queer timelines, queer, what do you call it? Just markers of success or markers <laughs> of adulthood. Ah, yes, the queer, queer adulting. What does that actually look like? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to think about that. I, I have a question about your art, which I saw you allude to somewhere, but a lot of your drawings have a stained glass kind of aesthetic or line to them. And I, I'm actually seeing a lot, some of your more recent, I feel like different times your art looks more like stained glass than other times. Can you mm. talk about that connection and when you choose to use that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, when I do, I'm mostly doing, I mostly am creating drawings now. Um, and usually I draw, I love ink on paper. I draw ink on paper. Um, and then I often will color digitally, usually using Photoshop. I've done a little animation, very minimal. Um, and that's been really fun, incredibly time consuming, but I enjoy it. Um, but when I paint, I use acrylic. And so when I first started doing, um, trying to do art for sale and display, I did um, acrylic paint, but I, you know, drawing is where my art interest um, has its roots. I just love drawing, especially drawing people. And so I decided to adopt an art style that allowed me to include a heavy line. And so, um, and also lots of color. And so stained glass has always been fascinating to me because, you know, when it's, you know, my favorite kind is that which is a little bit off center that does some really interesting things with multiple colors in one figure, one, multiple shades of the same color. And it also leaves space for, you know, it lets you show off the drawing in the work with either the painted on heavy line on some very old stained glass or the lead black line. And so that was a real inspiration to me with the line work and the color. Um, and so when I, um, particularly when I get to draw people who aren't real, um, you know, for certain shows, I love, always love to make new work for a show. So um, uh, then I will draw much more kind of um, not really abstracted, but kind of very stylized people, often male figures. I really love drawing male and masculine center people. And I rely on a heavy black line and I really kind of draw on the stained glass aesthetic. Um, more and more, if I'm doing commission work or illustration jobs, I often have to draw people who live in the world, who are, you know, <laughs> very specific. And so often I will still use the black line, but it, I don't use the stained glass aesthetic as much, um, depending on the job, because um, if it's portrait work for something, um, then that's not always the right place. But when I can, I love using outrageous colors. When I do black people, I love using the whole rainbow um, because what I love about drawing black people is that the person can be blue or they can be brown, um, but depending on how I engage the features, it's very clear it's a person of African descent. And so I love drawing black features, the nose, lips, hair, that's, um, and I love the idea that if I make that person pink, um, or, or orange, it's still very clear this is a person of the diaspora. That's a lot. That's a long answer to a very short question. I love it. <laughs> this is why I was like, oh no, how do I choose what? I was like, we could talk about any of these things I want to talk about for a very long time. <laughs> Hi listeners, it's me, Nicole. 
If you would like to support me and Ponyo, in particular our comics and animal illustrations, go to patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. And for as little as $2 a month, you can have access to hundreds of pages of otherwise unpublished diary comics. For the price of one cold brew plus tip, you can become an honorary Sagittarian. And for the price of two vegan cupcakes or two vegan donuts, you can become a Ponyo's Friend Club member, at which point you really start raking in goods, including new buttons. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. You um, are well known for a project called A Thousand and One Black Men. It's something I've really, I wonder if you can talk about that project. And also something I really appreciated knowing was that you kind of adjusted your gaze at a certain point in that project. And I appreciate your flexibility as an artist and ability to see that. Thanks. Um, Yeah, I, um, yeah, it coincided um, with moving to a new house, my partner and I bought a house and, and it it had taken me a couple years actually to set up a place to paint. And in the interim, I'd been doing a lot of drawings. And so I thought, you know, let me just lean into a project that's drawing base. And I was partly influenced by the amazing Alicia Lim's uh, um, 300 Butches project um, that become, became 100 Crushes, the book. Um, and I just love this idea of just drawing, you know, and somebody's doing a census with art. Um, and then also, um, you know, but I wasn't sure what to draw until I uh, was reading a magazine in the grocery store. Um, that's a magazine that celebrates Black men, has several issues a year that celebrate Black men. And I love this magazine. I'm not going to name it, although I've named it in other places. <laughs> but, um, but I noticed that, you know, even in a celebration of Black men, even um, these were all extremely traditionally attractive, definitely good looking guys, great outfits, very expensive suits, and very wealthy, um, or, um, or at least quite successful in their professions. And I thought, you know, as a, a queer black person, I, um, I foolishly thought that because I am not heterosexual, um, because I am partnered and um, masculine of center identified, I could be perfectly objective in seeing black men as they are and that I can draw you know, I can, any series of drawings I did of black men would actually be truly representative in ways that, you know, I'm not looking for wish fulfillment. I'm not projecting my ideas of a perfect husband or what I wish my son would be like or anything like that. I don't have kids. Um, and so I, I set forth to do it the right way. And um, I thought if I draw a thousand and one black men, um, that'll give me time to really become immersed in my subject. And if I do a drawing a day, it'll take me about three years. And it took me about six and a half years. And, um, and I foolishly believed, I learned a lot about myself. It was a humbling experience to learn how biased I was in my gaze on my own people. Um, what an education that experience was. I highly recommend drawing a thousand and one of something if you wanna learn about your relationship to that thing. Did you end up drawing every day? Well, you know, I did draw every day, but um, I had a really great cousin named Wayne, shout out to Wayne, um, who passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a fairly prominent Black blogger. And he looked at my website after probably about the first 40 drawings I posted and said, you got to tell us who these people are, or at least why you are drawing these particular people. 
And so that changed my pace of posting to an average of every other day. Um, so I do the drawings um, and then the writing really slowed me down. Um, and, um, but also the, the, you know, in terms of coloring them, I colored them digitally and the better I got at Photoshop, the longer it took to produce the drawings. Cause mm -hmm. I thought, well, I wanna bring in this ancient uh, African drawing and put it as the backdrop. And, you know, one of my drawings I'm looking at right now, actually, it took me about 12 hours. The drawing itself took me about an hour and a half, but to color and add all of the effects I wanted took me about 12 hours. So, um, so it, uh, you know, I would sometimes post like five in a weekend um, and just take, spend all day for three days. Um, but it was, it was a very intense and immersive experience it changed the way I saw myself and it changed how I looked at people in the world as well. What is the adjustment that you made as you went? What did you learn about the way that you were looking at people or who you were choosing to draw? Well, I learned, um, it took me about the first 300 drawings to realize that I was drawing people who looked very familiar to me. Um, that, you know, I live in Oakland and Oakland has a very diverse black community, um, diverse in a different way than say Brooklyn, um, that has a lot of people from a lot of other countries as well. But, you know, Oakland has, you know, black folks of all genders and, you know, from, you know, um, we also have international community of black people, um, all different classes and ages. And I was, there was an entire tier of black folks I would pass every day. The young guys who were, you know, wearing the big white t-shirts, this was in like 2010, 11, and the sagging pants. And, you know, I would see them every day. Um, and I would, I never drew them for like probably my first 300 drawings. I drew a lot of nerds. I drew a lot of guys in glasses, suits. I drew people who look like my friends and my family. Um, those are the people I noticed. And um, you know, I said, my local cafe, and there's a lot of other people who are working on their laptops. And so I, and so it was really a very narrow vision that I was reflecting. A lot of people within that vision, that vision. But um, so I started building out from there um, and started using every hundred drawings as a check-in. Sometimes I would check in on the website. Sometimes I would just do it and think about, okay. I mean, I found at a certain point, although I had drawn queer black men, I hadn't drawn gender non-conforming uh, black folks assigned male at birth. Um, and I realized that around drawing 500. And as a gender non-conforming queer black person, it was a little bit of a shock to me to realize that. Um, but because I identify with masculinity, I was really interested in drawing that. And so gender non-conforming black uh, assigned male at birth folks, um, I would I knew some of these folks and I would talk to people or see people, but the people who really caught my imagination were the people who reflected um, gender aspirations, my own gender aspirations. So, um, so it was really, you know, as this process was happening, I also developed a sense of accountability to black men as a group. That if I am not a cis black man, um, I have never been a black boy. I don't know what it's like to grow up with the expectations projected onto that body, however you identify as an adult or a teen, um, that I needed, to, uh, I needed to do right by this highly marginalized um, population. Even as a black person assigned female at birth, genderqueer black, nerd, butch, 
um, I needed to be respectful of the ways in which black men are marginalized and, and do, I wanted to do a good job so that when black men saw the work, they would say, oh yeah, somebody sees us. And so it became, I wouldn't say less fun as time went on, but I, I, it became more stressful as time went on in the project. I am pleased to say that whenever I showed large numbers of the work of the pieces, um, Black men really responded well. Um, you know, some of the Black artists I knew who would come to a show and say, this is awesome, I love this. Um, some Black men I'd never met would come up and say, you know, this is really great. The feeling I got from, um, and there were, I think there were three shows at which I showed maybe 200 images each. And the, the feedback was very positive. And I got the feeling that um, Black men felt like this actually represented the world they inhabited. You know, that they, it's like, I feel like, you know, over and over again, people would say, I feel like I know this guy. I feel like I know that guy, you know, and I just, I, I really love that. I have a lot of black men in my family. My dad's one of eight kids and um, I had amazing uncles and, um, and I just feel a lot of love for black men. And so I, I like being able to engage this subject because I know what it means to not be seen, to feel like no media reflects the actual experience you're having. Um, the only criticisms I've actually <laughs> received were from older black women who objected in some ways to the stylized nature of the drawings. Um, you know, how I did noses and lips in particular. Um, one woman who was about 96 actually, and um, another woman who was in her 60s. Um, these were criticisms, one that the level directly at me, but in a nice way. Mm -hmm. And then one that I heard through a curator um, and I wish I had had a chance to talk to um, the person, but I understand being protective of your community. Um, and I think that, um, um, you know, people, you know, want to see something that looks to them like what dignity looks like. And my images are in some ways a little more reverent and a little more playful than some people are comfortable seeing. Listener Justin Hall asks, <laughs> Dear Juan, how does your art relate your interests in both Black history and futurist ideas? Oh, I love that question. And I love Justin, so I'm glad. Um, you know, I, 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 feel, um, I, I feel like this, these things are very similar. They're intertwined with me. The notion of Black as this, Blackness as this kind of time transcendent um, identity, you know, Black people as kind of the witness to the birth of humanity and, you know, Blackness in perpetuity. Um, you know, I don't know if this is true, but I read in, I think it was in the New York Times that by the end of this century, one in three people on the planet will be African. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, the future is Black in many respects. And so, um, and so I do see a through line between, you know, Black kind of, you know, there's something really postmodern about being Black in America, even as, even in the 1800s, even in the 1700s, um, that you're, you're inhabiting all of these contradictions. Um, and, you know, what does that look like? Um, you're bringing over these deeply rooted ancient traditions, and yet 
technology facilitates this kind of um, enslavement of Black people, and yet we also become incredibly culturally influential, playing significant roles in science as well, and just looking at you know, I like what Nettie Okorafor, the science fiction writer does. She, if you read a book like Who Fears Death, um, which is a great novel, watch it. I think it's also gonna be a movie or a TV show. I think she said mm. on Twitter. Um, but one of the things I love is it's, it's, it takes place in Africa in like, I think 300 years from now. And you have to read like a hundred pages to realize you're 300 years from now. Um, you know, the theme in all of her work is that in 300 years, Africa, African people are still African with traditions and beliefs. They're not primitive beliefs. In some ways, they're incredibly futuristic. Um, and you can have the technology and you can have these thousands of year old traditions at the same time. And that's what I love about black people. You know, you have, you know, time continues to move forward. And yet we have these traditions that harken back to long before anyone in our families can remember. I guess that brings me to your current art show. Oh. <laughs> um, Black art from the edge of the universe at the African-American art and culture complex. What can you tell me about your new show? Oh, um, well, it's, um, they, I originally did it as a digital, as an online show um, uh, earlier in the pandemic, fall of 2000, uh, fall of 2020. Um, but it's, um, you know, that it's work that is, um, rooted in both real life, but also that plays with ideas of time and myth and black history and technology. And so um, I have a series of four drawings um, that um, if you hold up your phone and go use the QR code, uh, you can see versions of those afros that are animated. And um, one in particular is kind of a robotic afro with lights that flash on and off. And it was really fun to make. Um, and, um, you know, the idea of black hair as technology and the role of technology in what black people do to their hair. I'm super into that. <laughs> and so it was very fun to do these drawings. Um, but also there's, um, you know, I'm interested in belief systems and mythologies around blackness. So one of the pieces that if, for folks who get to see the show um, is called um, the bottle tree at the end of the universe. Um, you know, bottle tree being, you know, my family's from South Carolina. And so the idea of the bottle tree is a tree, you take blue glass bottles, you put them on the branches of a dead crepe myrtle tree, and you put it in front of your house, that tree in front of your house, and it catches the, the uh, evil spirits before they get into your house. Hmm. And so I refashioned the bottle tree into this tree where this black woman who is at the edge of the universe, you can see the galaxy behind her, in each of the bottles is a galaxy. Um, and so making that took about 900 hours. But, um, but it, you know, I just like this idea of this transcendent power in this deeply rooted cultural tradition. It was super fun, this old Black woman, um, you know, whose house has a star chart as it's on its shingles. Um, so, you know, just playing with history and the present. Uh, I have a drawing called Eve and Her Daughters, and it's um, five of the oldest tribes um, on, on the planet. Um, and Eve is, uh, you know, playing on this notion of mitochondrial Eve and also the oldest of all the tribes. It's a woman from the oldest tribe. And then her daughters are women from four other ancient tribes, you know, dating back between 50 and 80,000 years. These groups 
still live, many of them on their traditional ancestral lands, although they're fighting hard to stay on those lands. So just, you know, just taking these rich histories um, and projecting them into a, a, a black future. Beautiful, I saw that piece. It looks so oh. beautiful. Um, I wonder, you, so you do all these things and they take so, you have, you're a professor, you <laughs> teach, you teach students, you have um, a series on Instagram, Living While Black, you did this portrait series, you have this art show, you contribute to anthology, you do all this stuff. What is your practice like? <laughs> How do you do this? How do you do all of these things? A good question. Um, you know, um, I will say, um, you know, I've been teaching for a long time. And, um, and so, you know, um, and it's kind of, in some ways, it becomes the thing that kind of gives order to, um, to my life. Um, you know, I have my classes that meet these, this semester, I'm teaching three days a week, and um, mostly in the evenings. And so, um, you know, it's kind of this kind of through line um, of uh, structure. Um, but I just, um, you know, I have about 17 projects in my head that I don't have time for. Um, but I will just, you know, work in, I, I try to draw um, all the time. It's very relaxing to me. And so I am never not drawing. I'll never just sit at home and watch a movie. If I'm watching, I'm drawing. Or if I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm drawing. And so, you know, it really becomes the thing that I do if I'm not exercising or teaching, then I'm, I'm, I'm drawing. And um, writing is a little bit more difficult because I can't do anything. I can't do anything if I'm writing, I have to just do that. Um, but all of the, you know, the, the creativity um, really is, for me, it's intertwined with how I, how I relax, how I fully inhabit myself. And so I don't mind doing it, you know, every waking hour if I, if I can. I agree. This is something that I would aspire to do. I mean, I just in meetings and what I just have these notebooks all the time that are just, I mean, I don't, they're just like anytime I'm at any kind of meeting, even if it's just, I'm on the phone with people or whatever, I'm just always trying to draw. Um, a frequent contributor, Beth Pickens to the show told people, you know, even if you get taken away from your practice, it's always there. You can always return yeah. to it. It's always with you. It's just, you can look at it and acknowledge it whenever. <laughs> so I like hearing about people that have such an active practice, which I really appreciate yours and how prolific you are. Do you have any last advice for young cartoonists or any advice for aspiring cartoonists or just cartoonists? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I never thought I would be a cartoonist. I did my first comic in 2014. Um, I, um, and I would say, you know, make your work, just make it and put it in the world. Um, we're looking, living in an age of awesome technology. Whatever people say about social media, one of the things it does is it lets you find your audience. And so if you have a story to tell and you put that out there, someone, you're going you're gonna to find an audience um, and just continue, you know, it's that old movie, The Natural, I think it was, I think that was it. If you build it, they will come. If you create a place where people can find your work, um, then people will find it and they will, and it will answer, it will be what some people need. 
there it'll be what some audience needs. So just, you know, you may think, well, this is too weird. It's not too weird. Um, no one's gonna think this is funny or it should be funny, but it's not funny. There are people who wanna hear that story, wanna see that those drawings, however weird or not weird or funny or not funny. Um, you know, that's, I've, I've been able to find great comics community, um, incredibly kind, supportive people um, like you. Um, you know, just I just put some work out there and, uh, and a wonderful community helped, you know, help me find a sense of place and, um, and a trajectory. Well, it's such a pleasure getting to engage with your work. People can find you, you're in the um, No Straight Lines documentary which I haven't seen yet. You're in the No Straight Lines documentary. That's um, good. You have an art show up right now. Well, how can people find you and support you? How can um, people see your art show or engage with your work or anything? Um, you can find, I have a website, awanmance.com. And so you can check it out there and it links to other, um, the 1001 Black Men project I have and another online art project that I'm doing. Um, and uh, I'm also on Instagram. Um, if you search Instagram looking for a Juan Mance, you'll find me. That's not my Instagram name, but you'll, I have my real name in there. Same thing on Twitter. You can find me, just look up a Juan Mance. And uh, my name is 8rock on both of those, 8 underscore rock, which is Harlem slang in the 30s for a very Black person. So that is me. Um, so yeah, check me out. Excellent. Awan Mance, thank you for coming on Sagittarian Matters. No, thank you for inviting me. It's good to be here. Are you are you a Capricorn? I'm a Virgo. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.